Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. of your Bibles. Open them to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 this morning, starting in verse 22, is where we will be. Good reminder that we come back again and again and again to God's Word. Every Sunday, we seek to do things according to His Word, so we read the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we preach the Bible over and over and over again because the Bible, as God's Word, is the well that never runs dry. We never get tired of it. There's always something for us to learn from it, glean from it. There's always something that God is teaching us through it. And so we're thankful for his word and thankful that we can be in the gospel of John going through that. We're here coming now to the end of John 3, these first, uh, these last few verses. So would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as I read John 3, 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan... To whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May we, O Lord, delight in your word. And may we have ears to hear what your spirit would say to us through your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. We are right around the corner from spring. Maybe some of us are hoping it arrives sooner with warmer weather. I know I am one of those people. But with the spring comes growth, comes new growth, regrowth. Out with the dead and lifeless look of winter, in with the green and life-filled colors of spring. I don't know if you are a gardener or have much of a green thumb, I'm not. My wife usually picks out the plants. Sometimes I help her plant them. But if you spend any time around some plants, you will know that there are often two types of plants that are commonly referred to. There might be more. There probably are more. I don't know what they are, so that shows my ignorance. But I know there's two kinds usually that we talk about. Some plants are annuals. That is, they have one growing season. They bloom and then they die and that's it. Other plants are perennials. These have more than one growing season. They bloom, they die, and then next spring they come to life again. When it comes to the human heart, the inner life, and our struggle with sin, Do we ever find that sometimes there are perennial sins? Things in our life that we would wish would go away. And maybe we think we've overcome them, we've gotten rid of them, we've gotten past them. Maybe we've thought that they've died. But they raise their ugly heads again. (laughs) They haven't gone away quite yet. And there's one sin in particular in the human heart that I think is perennial and it has been going on throughout human history since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. It's perennial and that it never really goes away. Perhaps sometimes we might think it's gone, but then it comes to life again. It still has breath. What is that sin? It's the sin of pride in wanting to be God and stand where God stands. And if I'm right in saying that this is the perennial sin of the human heart, I think I am on safe ground to say that this is then a sin that still tempts us today. Not always in the same way, Not always identical with each individual person. 
but always that little voice inside us that wants to stand up and say, who does God think he is anyway? Do you ever say that in your heart? Do you ever say that this week? Maybe you don't say it out loud verbally, but your thoughts, actions, desires, they ever say that question. This is the place where we start as we read our text this morning. Jesus has just been in Jerusalem during the Passover. It's where he had his conversation with Nicodemus. Now Jesus and his disciples have moved out of Jerusalem and into the Judean countryside. So Judean countryside, uh, this area of Judah, territory of Judah, where they were, Judea. Like the, think about it as the state kind of, like the region. And you have a city like Jerusalem in that region. So they move out of the countryside, the Judean countryside. And what's happening there? People coming to Jesus and they're being baptized. If we were to read ahead a little bit in John 4 verse 2, we realize that Jesus wasn't actually baptizing anyone, but it was his disciples who actually were baptizing So people are coming out to Jesus and to his disciples there in the Judean wilderness, the Judean countryside, and his disciples are baptizing these people who are coming to him. At the same time, John the Baptist has a similar ministry. He is also baptizing, perhaps not too far away, at a place where water is plentiful, And it says that people were coming to him and being baptized. Maybe here, just one example, right, of what we believe as people who have a baptistic theology. I think John was baptizing in a place where there was plentiful water because it was an immersion in the water. He didn't need a little bit of water. He needed quite a bit of water to immerse people in the water. So that's why he was in this place where water was plentiful. The idea behind that people were coming to John and being baptized is this continual coming. They were coming, and they were coming, and they were coming. Two ministries, the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus, operating at the same time and in a similar fashion. And notice that they were both centralized around baptism. Then a discussion, or it could be an argument, took place between John's disciples, so those people who followed John, and over, and and with uh, this argument happened between John's disciples and a Jew, over this idea of purification, or ceremonial cleansing rituals that were put in place for the Jews by the Old Testament law. So the Old Testament said, here are particular things that you need to do to make sure that you are cleansed, to purify yourself. And so there's a question between John's disciples and this Jew over purification. Because baptism is a sign of this. This this comes out of baptism. Baptism, one of the things that it shows, among many other things, is someone being purified, being cleansed. This is an outward action 
of being baptized into water, which shows an inner reality of an inner cleansing that's happened in their hearts and in their lives. But here is the argument, really, that's taking place. How do you, John's disciples, John the Baptist, how do you have the right to overthrow the purification system within Judaism? How do you have the right to do that? Now, remember for one moment here, if you look in chapter 3, where we've been reading this verse 25, at the very end, discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. The last time we read about purification in John's gospel was all the way back in John chapter 2. Remember, Jesus was at the wedding, the wedding feast in particular, And there were the jars that were set aside for what? For purification. These were part of the cleansing ritual for the Jews. And remember what Jesus told the servants to do? Go fill those jars up to the brim. And we said this was a sign that those purification rituals, those purification laws, that Jesus was saying those things have been fulfilled. They've been done away with. The old purification laws are going out, in with the new messianic age. I am the Messiah. I'm the one who provides the new wine. Rejoice. So here is this discussion about purification. And I think that's an important verse because maybe we would read this and we would think to ourselves, why is that verse in in there? What does that have to do with anything? But I think that really sets the background, the context for what John is about to say. Who gives you the right to overthrow the Old Testament purification laws? Because there's this other guy who's also baptizing Jesus. Why is he doing that? And then John's disciples come and have this declaration to John. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So the question there of what gives you the right to overthrow the purification laws even gets more specific now with John's disciples coming to John and recognizing that Jesus is baptizing. And I think there might be a little hint of exaggeration here when it says that all are going to him. Some translations even say that all are flocking to him. Could it be that there might be a hint of resentfulness or bitterness in this declaration to John? John, these people, everyone is going to Jesus. We have a ministry here going on, a ministry of baptism. Aren't you concerned that people are going to Jesus? Could it be that John's disciples are perturbed by Jesus' rising popularity? Now we get to maybe perhaps the more specific question. How does Jesus have the right 
to overthrow the system of purification within Judaism. If there was discussion among John and the, John's disciples and the Jew over this idea of purification, now Jesus is, in a sense, brought into this equation. And how does Jesus have the right to overthrow the system of purification within Judaism? Who does Jesus think he is anyway? Has the perennial sin risen its ugly head again? Has arrogance and pride come against Jesus? John, aren't you at all perturbed by Jesus and what he is doing? Aren't you at all jealous of Jesus? John, don't you want to stand where Jesus stands? Is there any resentment or bitterness in your heart against Jesus? And and John's response instructs us on the authority of Jesus and why he does have the right to overthrow the purification laws. And since he has that authority, how we are to respond to him with our lives in a particular way. So what do we learn here about Jesus and Jesus' authority to do this, to bear this ministry, and in a sense, overthrow the purification laws. Two points this morning. Hope this helps us get to the heart of what is being said here. Number one, John has authority as the bridegroom, or I'm sorry, Jesus. Jesus has authority as the bridegroom to whom the bride belongs. Jesus has authority as the bridegroom to whom the bride belongs. I wonder here if we go back for a moment to this declaration of John's disciples. John, aren't you at all concerned that everyone is going to Jesus? Aren't you at all, John, discontent or discouraged by what you're seeing? Maybe this is kind of like Chicken Little. John, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. What are you going to do about it? Interesting. How many people like to unify over their discontentment? How many people like to unify over their resentment and over their bitterness? That little statement we say, misery loves company. John, don't you want to join us in this discontentment? Don't you want to join us in this resentment and in this Bitterness? And think about what John is doing. He's ministering, right? He's serving the Lord. Could that even happen in the church? We're going to unite over our resentment. We're going to unite over our bitterness. We're just kind of like disgruntled people, and so we're just going to unite, and we're going to call it ministry. (laughs) We call it serving the Lord. How easy it is How worldly it is for people to unite around what makes them discontent. The things that they resent. It's not the life of the Christian. 
the life of the Christian unites around Jesus Christ. And in the satisfaction we find in Him. And look at how John answers here. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Now, this could be broadly applied to everyone. It could apply broadly to your life. Have you received something? Look at all the things that you've received in your life. How is it that you've received them? Is it not from the hand of the Lord? Is it not from God? He's given you everything. We recognize this as Christians, don't we? What do you have, Christian, that you have not received from God? But I think even more specifically here, John is saying this statement in light of his ministry. John's saying, I cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given to me from heaven. So what does that mean? John is in effect saying, who am I to be discontent over God's wise and sovereign plan? Putting me where he has put me for his purpose and for his designed ministry. John refuses to be discontent with God. He will not be lured into arrogance and pride. He recognizes all that he has, his ministry, his role has been given to him by God according to God's design and God's ordained purpose. What about you? Are you discontent over God's wise and sovereign plan? Are you ever tempted to be perturbed with how God has done things in your life or where he has brought you in life? Are you prone to grumble and complain? John refused to be discontent. Would you fight discontentment in your own life? How would you fight it? How about this? With trusting in a big, glorious, gracious, and always good God. You couldn't receive even one thing unless it was given to you from heaven. You don't deserve even one thing unless it's given to you from heaven. We can say this about our lives because we bear witness with John who recognized and said, I am not the Christ. We are not the Christ. We are not the Messiah. We are not anyone's Savior. We can't even save ourselves. John was the one sent before Jesus to pave the way for the Messiah, to point people to the Messiah. And here is a recognition that John has. All the people who are flocking to Jesus should flock to Jesus. Because he is the bridegroom, and those people who believe in him are his bride. John here picks up on Old Testament imagery. Israel was often referred to as God's bride. We even read about that today already in Isaiah 62. We read more about it in places like Jeremiah 2.2 or Hosea 2.16-20. 
But notice now, what does John see? Their Old Testament imagery. God is the bridegroom. Israel is his bride. Now what does he say? Jesus is the bridegroom. Those who come to him and believe in him, who are they? They are his bride. Those people don't belong to John. They belong to Jesus. And this is what I'm fascinated by here. John is not counting up all of the souls that he has won, that have Uh, He is saved underneath his ministry. He's not chalking up all of the baptisms that have taken place under his ministry. Why? Because the people aren't his. They're Christ's. Christ, as the bridegroom, has his bride. He possesses his bride. His bride belongs to him. We, the church of Jesus Christ, belong to Christ. Do we ever forget this? Do we ever say, not me, I'm my own person. I don't belong to anybody. I call the shots. I'm going to do what I want to do. Perhaps we even think that the church belongs to us. When we believe that the church belongs to us, we defile the bride of Christ. And that we would sometimes think that who is Christ to dare get in our way what we want to do and what we're going to do. The attitude of being those who think we are our own person does not affect only those who might be out there. That's kind of an idea out there, people who would say, I don't belong to anyone, but would that idea infiltrate into us and here? The world might look at this and say, isn't this patriarchal and chauvinistic? But let me tell you a little secret. Speaking as one who is a part of the bride, who is the bride, I want to belong to the bridegroom. I want to be his. I want him to own me, to possess me. I want to belong to him. I wonder if this, I wonder if this would speak for a moment practically into marriages. Wives, do you want to belong to your husband? Now, I've I've just put the, the onus on there for a moment, the responsibility on the wife. But let's turn the question around for husbands. Husbands, does your wife want to belong to you? Have you loved her and cherished her and given of yourself for her that so much so that she says, I want to belong to you. You've wooed her.
Let me speak for a moment practically to those who might not be married. Maybe you long to be married. You long to have a husband. You long to have a wife. Maybe you would say, I want to belong to my husband. (laughs) I just don't have one yet. I tell you, we love you. We hear your longing. We know it. We feel it with you. You are not alone here. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to make promises. I don't know what God has for your life. I don't know if he's going to give you a wife or husband. He might not. I pray that he does. I pray for you all the time that he does. But rejoice in this. You belong to Christ. You are his. Take comfort in that. Remember the question, what gives Jesus the right to overthrow the purification system? Because Jesus institutes and establishes a better purification for his people. Do you think Jesus is going to marry a dirty bride? No way. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 25, 26, and 27. Remember this. Have this question in the back of your mind. If the question is, how is Jesus able to overthrow the purification system of the Jews? What gives him the right and the authority to do that? And the answer is that Jesus is the bridegroom. And there must be some purification that comes with Jesus as the bridegroom. And here it is. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me just say one little side comment to that. That is an almost, I qualify it saying almost, that is almost an impossible job, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you think you can love your wife as Christ loved the church, you don't know how much Christ loves the church. You think you have it easy? If you're saying, yeah, wives, don't forget the first verse, wives, submit to your husbands. Yeah, husbands, take a look at what you have to do. Forget about it. Don't worry about them. Worry about that. Husbands, love your, sorry, I got off topic. Husbands, love, that was for free. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Why did he do all of this? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What gives Jesus the right to overthrow the Old Testament purification laws? Because his purification is better. His 
His purification is thorough. His purification is lasting and eternal and forever. Those spots that you can't get out with anything else, the spots that Jesus gets out through washing you by the water of his word. That's the water that washes over us every Sunday. It's the water that washes over us every Wednesday. It's the water that we want to wash over us every single day. Wash me with the word, Jesus. And John doesn't want to stand where Jesus stands because only Jesus can do that. John wants to stand where the best man stands, and that is where he stands. And what does he do? Back in John 3 now. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. That's what the best man does. (laughs) He hears the voice of the groom and he rejoices greatly. This is a distinct, unique, specific voice. It's the voice of the shepherd for the sheep. It's the voice that says, I do. The one who initiates the promise, who keeps the promise, who seals his promise through his sacrifice on the cross. The joy of John is complete. I've been waiting for the bridegroom. This is an age of transition. Transition from This age of promise to this age of fulfillment. And John has seen it happen before his eyes. He's seen the bridegroom with his own eyes. He's hearing the voice of the bridegroom with his own ears. And his joy is complete because his joy is Jesus. And this is the only way that he's going to have perfect, complete, not lacking in any way, joy. Jesus completes his joy, and he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. That this idea of of rejoicing greatly, it's this idea of rejoicing, I rejoice. It's like a double rejoice. With the coming of the bridegroom, there is exponential rejoicing. And then John brings his conclusion. And this is where we'll come to our conclusion this morning. I'm not discontent with God. I'm not discontent with what he's done. I'm not discontent with his sovereign plan. Why? Because Jesus must increase. That must is a divine necessity. Jesus must, divine necessity, Increase. He must become more important. He must become more significant. And I must decrease. Just as that must of increase is a divine necessity, it's also a divine necessity that he decreases. I must decrease. Who on earth says that? Have you ever said, I must decrease? That's not what the human heart, the fallen human heart says. 
how John the Baptist, one who was set apart from the womb, one who was the forerunner of the Messiah, one who has been sent by God to, be, to bear testimony about Jesus Christ, that he would say, I must decrease, I must become less, I must become insignificant while Jesus becomes more significant. He does this because he knows the necessity of the bridegroom's work. Jesus must increase. And Jesus must increase all the way to the cross. Jesus must increase out of the tomb to the resurrection of life. Jesus increases in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Is Jesus increasing in your life? And is that a divine necessity? Is it he must? He must increase in my life. He must increase. He must be more important. He must be more significant. He must hold preeminence. He must have first place in my life. And I must decrease. Are you willing and ready to decrease? Are you willing and ready to say, I must become insignificant. I don't care if anybody knows my name. It doesn't really matter if people know what I think. Are you ready and willing to decrease? Especially if that means the increase of Jesus Christ. And is that? Jesus increasing, you decreasing, is that the key to your joy. Let's pray.